What is up, everyone? Welcome into episode 119 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. My name is Mike Johnston from Mike'sLessons.com, and my co-host who will be joining me shortly is Mr. Mike Dawson, managing editor of Modern Drummer Magazine. After Mike and I get all caught up after our two-week break, we'll be talking about our featured artist, the late John Blackwell Jr. In our educational section, we'll be talking about fill displacements. In our gear review section, Mike will be checking out the Yamaha Rydeen kit. We'll get to a bunch of your listener questions, and as always, we'll give you our picks of the week. So let's get started. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was a break and a half, man. <laughs> I know. It felt like forever. It's like we retired. Dude, we gotta learn <laughs> I know. We gotta learn how to do podcasts all over again. How are you doing, pal? I'm doing pretty good. Not too bad at all. How about you? Are you yeah. refreshed? I mean you were the one that actually took a vacation. Same old, yeah. same old for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh something that I haven't done in forever and uh now I understand why people do it. It's Yeah, did, it, you it, didn't get like the jitters of I'm not being busy enough? Not until the end. Um, I really committed to the vacation thing. Good uh, for you. But, but yeah, I'd say on day five, we, we were there for six days. So day five, I started kind of being like, so what time is our flight? And just starting <laughs> asking, like, so are we there yet? Are we going home? Uh, but no, it was great. The only thing that took a little while is just shaking the cobwebs off. I got used to vacation uh-huh. life and time. And, and I would do like two things in the day when I got back home. And I would feel like, man, that was a productive day. I recorded <laughs> a video on a linear fill, and uh, I practiced my single strokes. I am. I need a nap. That's so now. I mean, I'm that's not a bad way to to think. You know, the French way. <laughs> yeah. Right. Or the Spanish way, have a nice siesta in the middle yeah. of the day, shut down all the shops. I so wish so, yeah, I could do that. I know. But uh, but yeah, everything was great. Had a good time on vacation and managed to only film one lesson from the hotel. So I felt like that was good. Uh, I felt just comfortable with that. It. <laughs> I know. It's it's I just can't I just can't stop teaching. I can stop drumming fine, but I can't stop teaching. So everything's good with that. Uh, <laughs> testing out a bunch of snare drums, and I've got a meeting today uh, with uh, an architect and a builder, and we are redoing the Mike's Lessons facility, but we're starting with the stage and the back wall, which is kind of all that anybody sees on camera. So we're gonna, and that the stage nice. and the back wall will then become the design inspiration for the rest of the entire building. Uh, so, cool. do you have ideas, right. or are you going with what they, they yeah. suggest? You got your ideas, yeah. So I've been sending them, you know, different different pictures of things. I want something that it's tough. It, it's behind a camera, so if it's too much candy, then everyone's going to look around me while I'm teaching, trying True. to look at the '62 Slingerland behind me. <laughs> yeah, and if it's too boring it's just too boring it's just a sheet you know um so i I need to i've got some ideas but uh the cool thing is the architect that i'm working with is talking about doing something that's a little bit more modular and can be changed over time without any great effort which would be a really cool backdrop to have so hey so um, so how do you feel about fixer upper ending this year yeah man (laughs) well as I was listening to Chip Carter Gaines's audiobook on the way over here today, <laughs> Capital Gaines, not my pick of the week, but uh, as uh, yeah, it's going to be tough, but I, I get it. I mean, I've actually been there and, and just seeing the amount of business that they're doing outside of the TV world, I don't, yeah. I don't know how they're even functioning as human beings, let alone a happily married couple with four kids and a farm. Yeah. So and I saw their I'm, target I'm actually, now. So it's like they've yeah. they've gone next level. They don't need this little TV show anymore. No, no, they they're they're just fine. I mean, uh, you know, when I was when we were picking paint colors for our house, we were using Joanna's paint, and so yeah, I, I'm I'm actually happy, and I'm happy that they're going out on top. You know, yeah, for sure. Uh, who I mean, who does that? No one does that. I mean, they ride and, the wave till it crashes. I think one more season and Chip would get a little bit to metro i mean his stylist has already yeah. taken him a little bit too far like he's got the sculpted <laughs> beard and his hair is perfect yeah, yeah. now it's like oh, what happened to it that was snaggle tooth <laughs> his 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 hair was perfect he went to the um what is it uh, what's the big children's uh for kids with leukemia and cancer the big uh, oh yeah hospital. I, don't, I don't remember yeah yeah, but uh, one of those locks locks of something or something yeah he, he went to one of those you know um uh hospitals for for sick kids and uh instead of just like cutting his hair for them he went straight bald good like, yeah it was awesome yeah but i mean he's like bald to the to the skin so he doesn't have any cool hair anymore but uh yeah i, I as a huge fan of that stuff and uh, i'm i'm really happy to see him go out on top so yeah for sure good stuff but yeah definitely i uh 
that will be a design part of the design inspiration. I think we're going to go a little more industrial than how rustic Joanna does all of her stuff. Mm. I'm going to stop talking about decorating now, um, and we're going to start talking about drums because I, I feel myself slipping down a rabbit hole. Uh, two weeks away from this podcast and talking to me, what have you been up to, pal? What have I been up to? Um, gosh. Oh, I got to – I mean, it's like there's a constant flow of gear coming in, so I'm just mm. wrapping up um, – Sugar Percussion made six drums out of one tree from two, wow. two by 14, four by 14, six by 14, eight by 14, 10 by 14, and a 12 by 14 snare. So I just Whoa. wrapped up, um, you know, testing those and doing some videos. Yeah. And his his whole point in making it was not necessarily to have this thing to sell, but just to experiment. What does shell depth actually do to the drums? So mm. that's kind of the approach I took. Like, what does it actually do? And it was actually... Um, pretty shocking some of the some of the findings um really yeah well i'm sure we'll I, you know actually i could probably well I, i'm going to be posting a clip on my instagram of of the drums like side by like same pretty much the same pitch one measure of each drum cool so it it's interesting i'm what i found is the there's like a there's like a golden size like four to seven seems to be where it's like okay now you can you can really hear the difference you know like the shallower drum is a little snappier and the slightly deeper drum is a little bit more body but the really shallow drum has way more tone than i thought it would and the really big drums have like they're really dry and punchy right totally counterintuitive than what i would thought there's like a i don't some physicist could probably explain it but it's like once you get to a certain depth it's like what you expect is the opposite Right. Yeah. Really interesting. I mean that it's that uh, sixteen by one pancake drum that I have, or sixteen by two, I guess. Yeah. It it's just insane how low it'll go. My thirteen by three goes lower than most of my fourteen by six and a half. Right. Yeah. um, Kind of busted. And they also have a weird smack to them that that really is cool. Microphones just love it. Yeah. It's interesting. So when we do when I do the review for the magazine, we'll dig into it deeper. But I just wrap that up and then. Uh, Akutin sent me two gorgeous drums that, nice. I mean, as soon as I got, they came in, I'm like, these should just be on a shelf and not hit. <laughs> I mean, they're just so gorgeous, but I'm going to do my best that to break them. That dude's an artist, man. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. That dude's an artist. I, I really want to hear one of those someday outside of Nam. I've only heard them at Nam, which is so hard yeah, to judge anything. True. I mean, yeah, I'm, like I'm going to have them in the so. studio over the weekend and mess around Good. with them. So that's... You know, a lot of that, you know, and I got the new Yamaha electronic thingy. Have you seen that? Oh, that, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. What do they call it? It's kind of... EAD10 is what it's called. Right. So I've got So that I, I now. still don't quite understand that. I'm assuming it's similar to the sensory percussion thing. I, you Just, know, but I, yeah, my, my first thought was okay, they saw what those guys are doing. They're trying to make a more s- simple, user friendly version of that with not, without as many options. I mean, sensory percussion is kind of like you can do anything you could ever dream of doing with that. Okay. Which, if you're not really into sound design, it could be like, just give me some presets that work and let me just play. Yeah. This thing, I haven't even opened the box yet, but what I think it is, because they were talking about it at PASIC, it's got a microphone in, in, built into it, so it actually processes oh. your drum sound as you're playing it. Oh. But it also has trigger inputs, so you can combine electronic pads and things. Or So it kind of you can get like wow. funky... Like process drum sounds without having to do any mixing in the computer. Wow. With the goal being to just plug it into your phone or whatever and do video streaming and have it be funky, crazy, electronic, industrial That drums. sounds kind of right up your alley. Pal. I know, it is. It's kind of, I mean, it could nice. be exactly what I need because I I want to just be able to plug and play and have some just weird stuff to mess around with. So that's here. We'll be reviewing that soon. What else, man? I, I just got a gig. Um, a great, great guitarist, Larry Mitchell asked me to play a gig we're going to be opening for stanley jordan's group what with, with the legendary kenwood denard is going to be playing with oh my stanley gosh Jordan. congrats pal yeah that's, so that's my fourth time calling you pal I'm getting <laughs> congrats dude <laughs> so that'll be interesting i mean the music is super groovy and fun so i'm looking forward to it but you know that's you know first time i've ever opened up for a legendary drummer like that where Wow. Not on a festival, like he's probably going to be just sitting right, right. there watching. Yeah, because he's going on 45 minutes later. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But wow, I ain't scared. Really cool. I ain't scared. My hands no. aren't sweating yet. I'm all right. No, no. <laughs> you're, a, you're the man, Mike. You got this. That's cool, man. Oh, by the way, uh, so I got hit up from – remember when I went to Nashville, I stopped by the Nelson Drum Company and mm-hmm. did a bunch of videos for them? Well, I would – 
happily do that for my boy Bryson for free. But he, he told me at the time, he's like, hey, I want to get you a drum to say thank you for doing this. And I was like, oh, you don't have to do that, but that would be awesome. And I want to get into vintage gear, but I'm too scared to get into it on my own. Like I want someone – I want to tell somebody I'm looking for this snare. Can you find me a good one of these? Because yeah. I don't know how to judge it by reading the reverb right. page. So – so anyways, he got me a, a 1950s uh, Silver Sparkle, which is now Dark Sparkle, Dark Gray Sparkle, Gretsch Round Badge, uh, 14 by 5 and a half, I think. Interesting. Um, yeah, so it's uh, he's he's just he's actually having the guy that he works with at the shop, Andy, um, recut the bottom bearing edge. He said the bottom bearing edge was a little funky, so they're recutting the bo- bottom bearing edge, and then they're shipping it out, and it'll be my first ever – actual round badge drum besides like all the reissues that are out now uh, so now do you have a f- new broadcaster snare i do so yeah you could kind of compare what what the old totally and the new. that's yep. that's pretty wild cool yeah i'm really excited so i can't wait to like share that with you guys and the the cool thing that i realized while going through this is getting into vintage gear even though obviously it could be an insane rabbit hole you honestly can get into it pretty affordable like totally yeah it's. I, I was actually quite shocked because when I was, when he told me he was doing this, I was like, "Oh my gosh, man, is that like a nine thousand dollars snare drum?" And then I looked <laughs> up, I'm like, "Oh, okay." Like I didn't know they were kind of affordable. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah. The, I mean, it, so it's the, the, the one of, thing. I mean, I think it, it's ahead. kind of part of the, a problem that we have in the industry. There's so much great used gear floating around that yeah. I think companies are struggling to get convince people to buy new gear. Like, why? You yeah. know, why buy? You know, I hate to throw Ludwig under the bus, but why buy a Ludwig Legacy when you can buy a vintage Ludwig? Like, it's basically trying to do the same thing, unless you just want right. something new. It's tough. I, I imagine they're having a hard. Everyone's having a hard time. Like, how do you deal with this this yeah. current trend of everyone wanting old kind of vintagey stuff? That's. I mean, you become A and F, and you yeah, capitalize true. on it. Exactly. Honestly, I mean, um, you know, the big thing that you and I have talked about in the past is what does A and F do when that trend runs out? Yeah. Can they? Can they pivot? But the big thing, you know, for me is could companies please just stop innovating so much when it's like, (laughs) man, just just admit that your drum set's dope and just keep that drum set for four or five years. The problem is I I can't buy any of your stuff because I don't know what the hell it's called. I am glad to see that, uh, excuse me, Ludwig is reinvesting in the classic maple to finally give it a proper push that it needs because that is an amazing drum set. And I think it just like gets overlooked because people are like, ah, whatever, it's a maple kit. I'm like, no, that is a handmade, top-of-the-line yeah. maple drum set. And every time I've played one, I honestly, before sitting down, thought nothing. I thought, oh, it's a Ludwig. But I don't know what the hell it is. Yeah. It's just a Ludwig. And then I played it, and I'm like, dude, this is the best-sounding kit you have in your whole shop. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's the Ludwig Classic Maple. Yeah. I'm like, that's the name of the kit? Like that, <laughs> that doesn't really... It doesn't tell me anything, man. Like, so, uh, you know, but at the same time, I, I think they are sticking true to like what it used to be, which is you used to have a pearl before the export, before the masters, you just had a pearl. You had a mm-hmm. Ludwig. True. Um, so I, I get it. But at the same time, I'm always shocked by their top of the line kits because it's like, oh, it's a Ludwig. Yep. And then you play it and you're like, damn, this sounds good. <laughs> yeah. So. I give it up to them for having great sounding drum sets. Yeah. And, uh, so, all right, let's get into it. Talking today about Mr. John Blackwell. Yeah, we had to kind um, of skip over him last time because we just didn't have enough time to give him his his just respect. Proper so. due. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, unfortunately, he passed away in July. Uh, we got a you know, it's not a huge tribute story, but we did our best with what space we had in the December issue. What was cool was to see the the amount and the wide range of people who wanted to supply quotes. I mean, it's pretty. I, bet. I mean, you got Dennis Chambers. That makes perfect sense. He was kind of like his his uncle, Fred Eltringham. Who would have thought? Yeah. Hey, what the <laughs> hell is that? <laughs> dog? Are you okay? <laughs> it's our guard dog. We have a little Chihuahua guard dog here. At the okay, office. well, that dog's bark sounds like your spleen just exploded. <laughs> 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 what oh, amazing. Uh, anyway. Perfect timing as we talk about this somber subject. <laughs> well, John had a good sense of humor. I think he would appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, Fred Eltringham, Cheryl Crow's drummer. We, I mean, we've got Jim Keltner, who knew him really well, Carmine Peace, Livery DeVito. I mean, it's just it, it was just awesome to see how many people were impacted by this guy. Because yeah. he was such a sweetheart and 
uh, I don't think anyone had anything bad to say about the guy. Not not let alone no. the fact that his drumming was was insane. I mean, it was absolutely all insane. the bad that I ever heard was pure jealousy. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, why shouldn't he have the Prince gig? Uh, because I should. Oh, that's a great reason. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I'm gonna. Yeah, go ahead and it's kind of indis- indisputable that he was perfect for that gig. Uh, yeah, was, and really changed the game for that gig. And I honestly, before John Blackwell, Prince was so dominant. Even to drummers, it was just a Prince thing. And then when John Blackwell got on the gig, all of a sudden, drummers who weren't even into Prince were going to Prince concerts to yeah. see John Blackwell play. Yeah. And I mean, we all. I remember. I remember like it was yesterday. We all had to learn the Blackwell twirl. Like that was like the little half flip on the way up. I stayed away from it. (laughs) Man, I learned it just so I could just walk away from it too. Because once he does it, it's so signature you can't do it. Uh, Yeah. But what a great way to twirl the stick and still control the thing. Yeah. So you don't drop the stick. Because every time I try to do any stick tricks, they just flew out of my hands. Still, that's why I don't do them. But yeah, I mean, you know, I I remember when that. Well, okay, for me. I kind of knew about him through the magazine and the Prince gig, but when his double disc DVD came out, yeah, right. You know, that was at a time where you don't get educational content unless you're the man or one of yeah. the you know the people that are really moving this industry. That wasn't a time where everyone had their DVD and everyone had their online drum lessons. <clears throat> this was like if you had a DVD and it was two discs. Uh, I'm going to have to buy it no matter what. Yeah, right. Exactly. And I remember just watching that thing going like, whoa. And we were learning so much about, I mean, you could just sit there and watch it forever. And it was shot really well. And then he would do little things on the bass drum where I was like, that can't be one foot. And then he'd show (laughs) a foot camera and I'm like, okay, that dude's pretty good. But he was, I think what came across most, more than anything in that DVD series was how humble he was. Yeah, totally. Such so soft. Incredibly humble. Yeah, yeah. I have two personal. And did you actually? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. um, Well, he would call like every every six months. He would just call out the blue and just want to talk and like you know try to get me to buy a vintage symbol or something. Just whatever. Just being goofy. (laughs) But I remember the first time I ever saw him play was 1994. I was in at Pasic in Atlanta, and I guess he was from that area, so he was just kind of there, like trying to make you know make waves sitting in whenever he could okay. playing on whatever kid he could and at that at that time Pasic always had these like jam lob like lobby jams where there'd be like a house band and oh okay yeah whoever just wandered in could just sit in and play so i was just hanging out uh, and he sat in with the band and i remember first thinking all right i saw his name badge it said john blackwell i'm thinking is that ed blackwell's son like that was the first thing i thought was who is this guy but then he played, and he was—he just went for it. He was on the hi hat fan fanning thing, the the backstroke right. thing. He went yeah, yeah. for it. Uh, and so at that point, I was like, "All right, this guy, whoever he is, is somebody." Uh, right. So and did, you must have been a, a kid, right? Like fifteen or sixteen? Yeah, maybe I was. 16? I was a sophomore, and he okay, seemed so fourteen or fifteen. He was probably if early twenties. I don't know how old he was, right. but. But he seemed like so far beyond where I was at. It was like, whoa, what is going on here? Uh, so that was the first time I saw him. And then the second time was it – well, not the second time I saw him, but I experienced him live was at a NAMM show. We were in the Marriott, and they, they always have just band yeah. after band after band play at the Marriott. Uh, and we were just not paying attention because at that point in the evening, you're like, I don't want to hear any more drums. I don't want to pay attention to anything. I just want right. to get something to eat and a drink and go to bed. But yeah. all of a sudden, like the groove just got super heavy in the house band, like and everyone in the entire room was like their head just went. What is that? And Blackwell really? hopped on the kit and he was sitting in with the band. It was just wow. so. And the guy that was in the band, the, the house band was great. It wasn't like it was a crappy band, but sure. he just brought something. It was like this presence and clarity and just like command. It's like everyone had to stop and be like, okay, we're gonna watch this guy right now. Whoever this is, we're gonna watch this. It was super Man. cool. That intangible thing that, like you said, to have somebody that is very good on the drums playing and then all that happens is they switch drummers and then the feel, the the presence in the room changes. It's yeah. like, how do you practice that? Yeah, it was just electric. I don't know. I mean, it, it was uh, the same thing in 94. He was he was kind of you know rough around the edges in 94, but it was the same thing. Like, this this kid is going for it. Like, he's up there wow. he's, you know, sitting in between Ed Thigpen and Ed Sof. And he's going to do Max Roach. <laughs> like, yeah. what is going on? Wow. 
That's so awesome. Yeah. I mean, a super influential drummer, too, as far as I, I remember seeing people do so many things where I, at the time, could say, oh, you have the John Blackwell DVDs. Like, oh, I, yeah, yeah. True. I have those DVDs, too, so I know what you're doing. And uh, <laughs> But because... You know, the DVD thing was weird, man. Like, I mean, you and I grew up through that era of videotapes moving into DVDs, and it was so rare that somebody actually gave you the real secrets. It was kind of like, okay, I'll give you all the beginner to intermediate stuff, and then you're going to have to go just explore it yourself. And Blackwell was like the first one that was like, oh, you want to know what that was? I'll show you right now. (laughs) And I remember thinking like, wait, you're not supposed to tell me the real stuff. <laughs> I could actually run to the drum set and apply that right now. That's valuable information. Um, I, in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm going to build a business just on that someday. And then I think, to me, and I know this this might be a stretch, and I would love to hear from Todd about this, but when I saw Todd Zuckerman's first Method of Mechanics DVDs, it actually took me back to the Blackwell DVDs because mm-hmm. I was like, this is what I'm talking about. Like, it, Yes, I want to see you perform because that validates your teaching, but can you please just give me some actual valuable content? And so uh, I really thought that John Blackwell's double disc DVD set was one of the first times that I thought, wow, this guy's really breaking down the real stuff that I could actually walk over to my drum set right now, rather than just these vague concepts from professional drummers that kind of got me a little lost. You know? Yeah, um, that's true. And it, and, it, and it found the balance too, because <clears throat> obviously around that same time, maybe a little after you had Thomas Lang's DVDs come out that were, it was literally like six hours full of valuable practice techniques right, right. and not much else. It was just content. Mm-hmm. I mean, dense content. Is that your stomach again? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and then, uh, but yeah, so I thought Blackwell's DVD just found the balance between those two, you know? Yeah, sure. I, it did, I guess really it cool. did kind of set a new bar because I'm thinking like the, the videos that I loved the most were, you know, the Dennis Chambers videos, the, the first Dave Weckl things. And that, I mean, they yeah. were still kind of rough productions. They were essentially yeah. like bring a guy in the studio for a day and let's let's try to get him to teach a little bit and play and mm-hmm. and that's kind of it. But this this felt like it had more of a actual script, more of a a plan. Yeah, and it also was a huge jump technology wise from the cameras that were being used with Dennis and Dave into this new HD world. True, yeah, um, with great lighting and it wasn't cheesy. It was it was very studio set up and it was just like wow, this is. Okay, this is the next step, the next evolution of, I would say, you know, recorded educational content. So uh, that, to me, I, I was really impressed by that. And then, you know, uh, the best thing that I can say is that about, I don't know, 10 years ago, my wife and I had been married for about two and a half years. And uh, she went to the Prince concert and all she talked about when she came home was the drummer. Really? She's like, you got to see this drummer. He said, I'm like, I know who he is. Like, I mean, I, I was like still just local drum teacher guy. I wasn't, you know, in the professional rank, so I didn't know him at all. And I was like, yeah, yeah, John Blackwell, he's very good. She's like, no, you don't understand. He holds his hand up in the air, but he plays like 10 other things with the other hand. And then he hits this China symbol that's like 20 feet behind him. And I'm like, okay, you just said China symbol. Get in the bedroom. That is the hottest thing ever. <laughs> the fact that you even knew what that upside down looking symbol was, that's all I need. We're good to go. Oh, goodness. <laughs> all right. So, anyways, John, thank you for enhancing my marriage. Oh, uh, you are missed severely, my friend. One I mean of the greats. Real. One of the greats. Gone way too for soon. Sure. Had so much more to go, but, you know. Life is strange. Well, the one thing that is great um, is that he lived in an era where we had social media, we had YouTube and everything. So, you guys. You haven't missed it all. You can go check out his DVDs, obviously, and you can find tons of content about John Blackwell playing with, you know, doing his solo stuff or playing with Prince on YouTube. So check it out. Now it is time to get into some education. So we're going to be talking about fill displacements. And that is definitely displacements in any fashion are a little weird. I think the first thing that most of us hit is maybe a grid system and learn to just displace the accents against a downbeat. Mm. Then if you had the Dave Weckl videos, you're going to learn about groove displacements and displacing the kick and the snare. And But a fill displacement is a whole different thing. And there's a good section on it in Mark Juliana's new book, yep. so you can check that out. Um, and just taking something as simple as Pat Boone, Debbie Boone, and just starting in an eighth note earlier or later throws the whole thing off, especially because yeah. that one's so melodic. But Dave is taking a fairly complex... <laughs> It's awesome. I'm a, I'm a fan of the dogs. Um, he's taking a fairly complex fill and then 
moving that throughout um, the measure, which will change where you kind of exit the fill. So do you do this at all? Or do you, when you're working on anything, do you have it down so specific that you could repeat it but move it? Or do you just, is it different in your mind? Like when you're playing a fill, let's say you want to come out of the fill on the uh of one. Mm -hmm. Do you just kind of fill until you get there? Or do you take a fill that you already know by heart and shift it? Yeah, that's, I think it's a good, I mean, it's, for me, it's a mental, you know, how am I thinking about it? And I tend to think of that stuff as more, I'm aiming for a goal and then I just play something that fits in that. This is a new thing for me, uh, mainly inspired by Dave DeCenzo and Mark's book of taking very specific patterns and reworking them so that they resolve in different spots. That's not something I've done. I usually just aim for the, right. the end result and, and, you know, make a, make a fill to fit that. So yeah. this is something that I'm currently, you know, I haven't fully dove into, but it's, I'm ready to kind of, cause I like, I like the idea of instead of learning 8,000 fills, learn eight fills and then figure out how to displace them and resolve them in different spots. And then spots. you have 8,000. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, well, yeah, I mean, I think what happens is <clears throat> it's not something where you're trying to trick the listener. I mean, it can be, obviously, but what I think happens is something that you've probably experienced, and Instagram does this to us all the time. So you put up a new video, and it's your new Mike Dawson weird video effects thing. So you're going to do... <laughs> that's how I'm I, glad that I'm that's that how guy, I, actually. I think that's, yeah, that's how I'm okay with that. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty rad, I think. <laughs> At least you have a thing, man. Um, so you put up that video, and then let's say two hours later, you go to check in on it. You scroll to it. The video starts playing, but you didn't have the sound on. Then you press, you tap it one more time. The sound kicks on, and the sound kicks on maybe on the end of something. But to you, it's the first note you've heard. And now you're hearing the whole thing you played mm. displaced by one eighth note. And have you, I mean, I've experienced the point where I can't get my brain to flip it. I'm like, I don't remember how the hell I played it because I know <laughs> I didn't play it like that, but I can't stop hearing it like that. And I think that's what Dave Weckl talked about in his early DVDs or videotapes was having a rehearsal with his bass player. They played the tape back. They started it in a weird spot and they heard the whole thing displaced and then they started actually doing mm. it on purpose. So I see using Dave and Mark's concept with this as something that you displace it in practice and it eventually creates a fill that is more creative and more enjoyable to you than you would have done without walking through the displacements and the permutations. Right, um, right. What I don't see myself doing is being in a gig situation, getting ready to do a fill, and then going, nah, I'll just start that same fill on the end of two just to <laughs> mess with everybody. I don't see that happening for me personally because I'm also not in that much of an experimental situation. But I really see it as something where you just discover things and you realize that one fill you had is actually a hundred fills. You know? Yeah, true. I mean, and, and Dave is using the inverted six stroke roll, a fill that we probably all overuse, but he inverts it. So the accents are on the inside rather than the outside, which makes it slightly okay. different. And then yeah. just moving it. So it resolves in different spots. It just creates, it doesn't sound like a six stroke roll anymore. So I think right. uh, we probably could get Dave to weigh in on it, but I think it's, it's, it's also this idea of, of just training yourself to hear these rhythms in the 16 different ways. So then, you know, if there's a band hit on the uh of four, you just automatically instinctually know how to phrase that sticking. So it's kind of like an Indian, like a tabla concept. Like they know the resolution point and they know the math to make it work, to play their, their figures before that. It's almost like looking into the future. Yeah. There's a funny thing with drumming where I know the artist will, instinctually say like i don't want to get into all the math of it but in my experience going through all the mathematical possibilities is what gives me the freedom to never think about them ever again yeah exactly exactly you You have to go through it i think you have to go through it otherwise i think yeah i I do you're not getting the most out of it you just learn one fill and you play it one way and that's your fill for when you have to hit the e of four or something right rather than how can i make what all all these other ideas you know match up with that yeah, I think yeah. you have to go through that. I mean, one of the videos I did post, someone asked me, uh, you know, can you break down the sticking? And I went back and looked at it. I'm like, I have absolutely no idea what my sticking is, but I can guarantee you it's it's combinations of singles and doubles. I can, I mean, I, right. I've just, because I've just yeah. gone through all of the variations of that. For me to write it out would be silly. It might right. be informative for someone else, but for me to write it out for myself, it's like, I, I know what I'm doing. I don't know exactly what I'm doing, but I know what I'm doing. Right. Well, and you know, and and that's the thing is it's all created from 
your previous practice. I mean, it's you going through all that gives you the ability to speak freely on the drum set instead of if if you and I, while speaking, had to write out the sentence before we said it every time, this podcast would be 65 hours. But we just open our mouths and start blabbing about, you know, Blackwell getting me in the bedroom with the hey. wife. And it's just like, you can't, hey, hey, you can't predict that stuff. So that being said, I, I think that that's what Dave's concept really gives you is it takes you through those permutations and then eventually they all fade away and you just play the instrument. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think for like That's tangible practice technique, it would be take one sticking six-stroke roll or something that you really have under control and then take that resolution point and move it forwards and backwards by one-eighth note or one-sixteenth note. Yep. You know, just hear it completely differently. Yeah. I mean, it's good ear training. I think more than anything for me, it's ear training. Like I still have a hard totally. time hearing patterns that start with the bass drum. Like I just have a hard time hearing that. Right. So I need to spend That's more a, time with that. Yeah, man, I, I, I feel you. You know, uh, the other thing that – I could see this being very useful for is purposely displacing it in a solo situation where you're creating maybe yeah, kind of all a Dijonet or Elvin, where you just take this thing, you get the audience used to it and then you just move it over and they hear it so different. And then you move it back and you're, you know, you're not doing anything new. It's just the placement and where the audience is hearing it. And they just kind of are like, I, I can't, I can't hear that anywhere other than starting on the one. It's <laughs> yeah. like, okay. But, we trained ourselves to do that. There's, that's the one thing that is hard for me to get across to students is when they say, like, let's say that um, we did a basic rock beat and it's four on the floor. So hands are playing eighth notes, snares playing two and four, and the kick drum's playing four on the floor on the quarter notes. And then I move that not to the 16th, but just one eighth note forward in time. Mm-hmm. And then somebody's like, man, that one's so hard. And I'm like, well, it's not. It's not any harder. It's just more unfamiliar. True. So there's yeah. a difference. You know, like it's if you look at it on paper, it's not harder at all. If anything, it's easier because you don't have to play all three limbs at the same time. So technically, it's easier, but it's so unfamiliar to you. And I remember the first time Mark did is Pat Boone, Debbie Boone, starting on the and of two. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> boom, doom, cat, doom, doom, good, doom, doom. Yeah, like cat. where's the like, one? What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Like I, I remember just – and then the two camps – or a camp later, I'm doing it with Ash and he's teaching that. And I'm just sitting next to Ash Stone going like, dude, your mind's about to be blown. Your mind's about to be blown. I can't wait to see your face when Mark comes in on the and of four. And, you know, I mean those are things where it's like, wow, we don't – you don't need to play the craziest stuff ever. Sometimes you just need to be really creative with the simple things. Yeah. I mean sh- you I think get that, so much mileage out that of That should uh, – we should probably – open up the conversation about the uh, the email we got this kind of leads right into it um yeah where is it so it's oh gosh i love that we're getting feedback and the criticism i think is awesome as well i i, I don't f- feel that anyone should be you know afraid to tell us that when they don't agree with us because we definitely don't know everything but who was this this came from dan so what did he say uh, we were talking about whether or not we think practicing that Steve Gadd shuffle with the hi-hat on the off beats is mm-hmm. something that, first of all, something that we've done and whether we think it's really something that's worth doing in the first place. So his criticism was uh, don't play it. We shouldn't say don't play it because it's hard um, and don't play it because Gad played it. And then he later says, as drummers, each of us has the responsibility to help push the instrument to new heights. Uh, by staying on the shoulders of those who have come before us. And if we all revert to a default groove every time, uh, because walking on the edge of the cliff is too difficult, we all lose, and so does the music. So I couldn't disagree more. I kind of feel it's it's contextual <laughs> more than anything. Exactly. Well, that's <laughs> the thing. What, what I'm disagreeing about is any absolution yeah. when it comes to art. Um, <clears throat> not to mention... The situation is what dictates it. I remember when we had that question, I was honestly thinking in my mind about him gigging. And I was thinking about like, dude, just make it feel good. You have a job to do. This isn't your time to push the instrument forward. This isn't your time to stand on the shoulders of giants. This is your time to make the music feel good and make everyone in the room feel good. Now, if we flip it to my world and say, okay, you're going to play this shuffle at a clinic well, hell yeah. I'm not even just going to put a left foot in it. I'm going to throw a tambourine on the of two. Like, <laughs> right, yeah, whatever. Of course. Yeah, I want to push it. it as far as I can. Yeah. So that's what – so what I disagree with is not actually his statement. It's that his statement, like you said, it would be totally 
I would agree with it depending on who he was talking to. If yeah. he was telling Virgil Donati that advice, I would say yes. And if he's telling local gigging drummer, which is where I thought that question was initially coming from, I would yeah. say no. So yeah. I mean, exactly. I think if Virgil Donati is leading his own band and he wants to push things as far as they can go and everyone in his band is, is totally on board with it, then do all the inverted shuffle patterns right. you, can, yeah. you can dream of. But if, he, if Virgil Donati's a sideman and he's playing with Buddy Guy and he throws in that groove and Buddy's like, dude, right. just play a shuffle, that's a fail. I mean, it's just... Yeah. And, and my, my disagreement with this statement is that our goal should not always be to push the instrument forward. Our goal was to no. make good music. <laughs> that should be exactly. the goal. Well, the thing is, like, wouldn't our goal be dependent on who we are? Yeah, exactly. Virgil's goal, goal is different. to push the instrument forward. <laughs> right, it's yeah. like, I, you know, and Steve Jordan's goal is to make the music feel good. Yeah. And that's the thing. And that's one of those things that, you know, with my drum camps, that is such a big part of what I push on the campers is like, you're not here to impress me. You're not here to battle the other campers. You're here to become as you as you can be. And whatever that is, I will sign on board with that and jump on board with you and help you do that. True. So, and the other point but, is, is skipping, yeah, go ahead. skipping ahead. Like Steve Gadd is, I think, is a perfect example. That he, As a young drummer, he lived in an organ trio where he was probably playing shuffles mm-hmm. for three hours a night for years. I guarantee <laughs> you he was playing regular, quote-unquote, default shuffles thousands and thousands of times before one day his left foot just started doing something differently right so yeah, he yeah. owns that shuffle so it's so deep in his body and his dna mm-hmm. that he can then say okay let me try something different but right. i think the majority of us don't really have a shuffle under complete command no and to say okay now let me innovate it if you right. do cool and if you just want to do that cool too but i think i if I recall the conversation, it was have we? It, the question was, have we ever practiced this? And we just kind of mm-hmm. said, yeah, we practiced it, but there's not really much of a practical use for it unless you're trying to do mm-hmm. the Steve Gadd thing. So, right. I, well, I, I, I will think say just this: play a good shuffle is one of the hardest things to do. So why try to do yeah. something even harder? <laughs> right. Well, and and once again, it still comes down to like what you said, contextual, like. The reason to try something harder is because your heroes are Marco Miniman, Thomas Lang, Virgil Donati, you know, and you're trying to push the envelope as far as you can. It's like, dude, that's the beauty of this instrument. Yeah, you get to be that want. guy yeah. or girl. Do whatever yeah. the hell you want. <laughs> um, so I, I think, uh, you know, I, I agree. I also want to make sure that, um, you know, he knows that thank you for writing the criticism, though, because I want to know when yeah. you guys are driving in your car or running on the trail like what just makes you makes you on fire like if i could fight mike and mike right now <laughs> i would i would put dawson in a headlock and kick johnston in the cojones i mean i love the, um, the so, ambition of of yes maybe we should all be thinking of what can we do to contribute to the art form but i don't think that means what can we do to make the art form more difficult and more challenging necessarily the other thing too is like i said uh for all of you guys listening you have to understand that when we're answering these q a type things we're trying to put it in in a specific situation that's particular to the person asking the question but even that we generally don't have enough information so we're doing our best if we get some of them (laughs) and we get them all right all right anyway that was that was dan thank you dan we appreciate it so where we he's like yeah i don't feel like you appreciate it (laughs) well i mean we are at you know at us we got to come back right (laughs) right absolutely so we are talking now about the yamaha rydine kit which blows me away uh that the cost of playable drum sets is in this area four hundred dollars for a shell pack yeah okay hold on now that's a very responsible way to look at it in my world it's 399 okay (laughs) i'm looking right now actually 399.99 um so it's one penny less than 400 i'm looking right now on a couple different websites but yeah 400 bucks and this is uh First of all, it's a playable drum set, but more than that, it's in sizes that I can get on board with. Yeah. Right? You've got – it's not the big 12, 13. So you've got 22 by 16. I'm really happy that the 22 by 16 is becoming 
more the like okay here's the cheap bass drum size rather than 22 by 18 I, yeah, I think yeah. that's just too deep it's, especially for by 16 if you're is much small, more playable if you're a young person and your body is smaller that's that 18 inch deep drum right. is just too big you can't carry it it is yeah yeah you can't carry it and you can't muscle up enough to get any sound out of it oh, yeah. it takes a long time for those sound waves to hit <laughs> that that uh, rezo head but a 10 by 7 rack tom the beauty of that it's not just that it's a hip size which i think it is because I, I love 10 by 7s but that extra inch of shallowness in the depth that allows a kid to get it lower on the bass drum, yep. which is awesome. Yep, that's that's, um, that's, always, that's, a, that's always a big deal that I I forget until I'm tr- teaching a kid and he can't reach the drums and he had to angle mm-hmm. them sideways. And I think that's yeah. that's how that happens. You get the sideways Mickey Mouse ears drum sets. Yep, <laughs> <laughs> that's because yeah, and uh, it's either that or you look like Mike Borden, you know, yeah. and you're just trying to like play this massive tom. And so to have a ten by seven, super helpful. And then. You've got what a twelve by eight probably, yep, standard. and then a sixteen yeah. by sixteen. 15 so, by 16. have you actually played a writing kit? Yeah, I did the review. Unfortunately, I don't have any audio because I had to review it and pack it up like right away. But okay, um, yeah, I mean, I gave it a, a solid once over because the first thing I look for with entry level drum sets is you know knowing that this was probably a mass produced factory instrument. Of course, you know where what could have gone wrong, uh, right. But I was quite surprised. I mean, the edges were clean. The inside was was rough. I don't think it was finished, and it felt like the wood might have been like really fresh wood. Like, okay, it wasn't like aged or anything like you would for a high end custom drum. Uh, but the edges were clean. The hardware for me, entry level kits, it comes down to the hardware because the first thing that's going to pop off is gonna that's what's going to break: crappy yep. lugs and crappy tom mounts. And these are legit Yamaha uh, tom mounts. They do. Yeah, they they're do not the ones straight that, to the shell. They don't have the suspension system. But right. I mean, but I, I'll take any. Well, first of all, we've talked about it. You get all this suspension system, and then you put gaff tape all over yeah. your drum. <laughs> so it's like it makes no sense. But I just love that the mounts aren't those click mounts where you can get never get your tom where you want it. They're yeah. the ball joint mounts, yeah. so you can get this exactly where you want it. It's the it's the you know the the standard Yamaha uh, tom mounts. Which so that was already like okay, that's a worth the price right there everything was good um they tuned up fine i mean it was kind of like just shocking how nice a 400 hundred dollar drum set can be in in today's situation i mean Uh, yeah the industry has just changed so much yeah it was it was it was shocking it sounded fine it sounded good i was able to i mean the heads are the you know the the kind of cheap heads so that would be the first thing you would want to do to upgrade it but i think if 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 you want a, just a, a beater kit or if someone in your family is interested in playing drums and you don't want to spend a right. ton of cash, this is a kit that I think could last 10 years or more. I mean, you could really... Yeah, no, totally. It wouldn't be like and a one-year I mean, kit and you blast through it and then you got to buy another one, which is yeah, what I did with my Sears Roebuck Blackhawk <laughs> kit. <laughs> did you? Dude. Hey, man. Someone out there, someone has my Jugs percussion and I want it back. <laughs> Um, and I also love to, I mean, it, it comes in a few different colors. Um, you know, yeah. you can get like the full on Tony Williams, yellow, yeah. black sparkle, um, silver sparkle. Yeah. They're wrapped, they're, they're wrapped, the wrap, uh, whatever you call them, Delmar style wraps. It was, it was, a, it yeah. was a nice kit. I think if, if this was in a, a club and I had to play it as a house kit, I wouldn't bat an eye that, you know, that it was going to like, be a drum set. Bar. Yeah. Just, it sounded good. It was stable. You know, the heads would be the first thing to upgrade. I think they're also selling a version of this that comes with a cymbal pack for not much more. Oh, nice. Maybe another 100 bucks. So, And hardware. Cool. So you get a full – I mean, and, and the hardware is, again, it's the legit Yamaha hardware. It's, yeah. It's not cheap. Well, this stuff. seems like it's a good time to be talking about this kit just because of the fact that we're getting close to Christmas. And, you know, there could be a lot of our listeners out there that have either kids or – nephews or nieces that want to start getting into the drums and this would be the a nice kit to start them out with and then you know to me this is like the honda civic of kits yeah get your kid a brand new honda civic at 16 and be like i'm out i'm never getting you anything again whatever happens it's on you this thing will run for the rest of your life or you can wreck it tomorrow it's up to you that's true um so I, I don't know if Yamaha wants me calling their kit the Honda Civic of drum kits, but I mean that as a compliment. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, still I guess it wish... depends on the, the era. I think of like the mid-90s, everybody had a Honda Civic, and they had them all through high school. And 
Yeah, and they never broke down. And they never broke down, and they no. were like getting put spoilers put on them. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. All you had to do was get the windows tinted limo black, get your five stars on there, um, and then exhaust, and then get your pull-out stereo, and you're good to go. Get your 15-inch subwoofer in the back. What's the problem? Oh man, we're uh, showing our age now. Gosh. No, no, no. I was just referring to what it must have been like to be. No, no, no. I'm I'm, I'm 28, bro. <laughs> All right. So check out the Yamaha Rydine kit. Uh, and I, I, like I said, I think for a, a Christmas, let's get started kit or like Mike said, hey, I just need a beater kit to take to the club. So I'm not freaking out about my 70th anniversary Gretsch yeah, USA right. custom. Um, then this would be perfect. So, all right, let's get into some listener questions. All right. So what do we got here? First one is coming from Dustin. Um, could you give an example uh, a staple album or two to check out for jazz that's a little easier to understand and then maybe a couple that are intermediate and then a couple that are more complex well, there you go do you have any choices no god no <laughs> listen to that crap I think you can't go wrong <laughs> with anything in the Miles Davis uh, discography from the 50s through the mid 60s and that kind of covers everything if you go Birth yeah. of Cool or Kind of Blue that's going to be like your kind of easy to understand it's not the chords aren't going by super fast and they're not really stretching. and the arrangements are easy to understand you're going to feel yeah. like you're listening to a pop album yeah. if you know compared to like some complex jazz stuff exactly and then you go to the quartet the quintet with philly joe jones and then there's a little bit more the, the arrangements get a little tighter and a little more adventurous but it's still pretty they're still following basic song form it's not you know once you realize that they're playing like a 32 bar form it's kind of easy to follow along they don't they don't step outside the changes too much and then you get into the 60s band with tony williams and that's when they start to really the walls start to fall down so i (laughs) think just just the miles davis discography is a lifetime of study especially from the mid 50s to the mid 60s that's kind of like it also it also gives you especially if you're going to be a lightly gigging jazz drummer it'll give you exactly what you need to know when anyone says, oh, it's like got a cool jazz vibe. Yeah, exactly. When I first heard the term cool jazz, I thought it was smooth jazz. Yeah, I didn't know it was this oh, thing, yeah, this sense. West Coast Miles Davis thing. I just yeah. was like, oh, okay. Uh, you want me to be Joel Rosenblatt? Here we go. And then they were like, yeah, not that. Maybe you should listen to some early Miles, you know, or, or like you said, 50s and 60s Miles. So, yeah, it'll give you a great representation of cool jazz as well. So the next one comes from Trey. Uh, this would probably be we probably could both weigh in on this what are your thoughts on offering bi-weekly lessons oh twice a week yeah yeah oh bi-weekly um as it sinks in for me (laughs) um i think it's personally too much um i could see it being something where each lesson is a completely different world that you're teaching. So if you're teaching the same thing to the person and trying to keep them up biweekly, I would only do it if somebody just had massive, <clears throat> excuse me, massive ADD. But I have had times where somebody would come in on Monday and that was their technique and, uh, you know, form lesson. And then they would come back in on Thursday and that was their drum set lesson. Mm-hmm. And it was just because they, they needed in their life to have that kind of sense of repetition. But Normally, I, I I don't prefer to teach that way. Yeah, I kind of. T- I mean, in high school, I did take drum set lessons from two teachers at once, and I took classical percussion lessons with another teacher. It was definitely too much. But the one teacher, we were totally in technique and independence, Joe Murillo style. You know, mm-hmm. just stick control, syncopation. The other drum set teacher was all conceptual. We were talking about you know how to set up a big band and all that kind of stuff. So those two were. I mean, it's kind of supplied me with the information I needed to get through the week playing with the, you know, the, the regional big bands and all that kind of stuff. But I definitely didn't practice as much for the conceptual lessons as I did for the technique lessons. So it's so, dude, it's so funny. This question went so in two different directions. I only thought about it as teaching to a student <laughs> twice a week. And you thought about it as taking two lessons. It never even occurred to me to take two lessons a week. I only thought of it as like a student is coming to me and trying to, wow. So I answered it completely wrong because I was thinking of it from the teacher's perspective. No, no. He was asking and, it from the teacher's offering. He said offering by, by weekly lessons. Okay, 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 cool. So I was just well, then, to, yeah, I then there's two different perspectives. The, yeah, the headspace of the student. And at the time, I needed it. I needed the information. But I was 17, okay. 17 years old, and that was, I was just yeah. going crazy. As an adult now, 
once a month. And actually, some of the, the adult students I work with, it's like every two weeks might even be too much for some people. I agree. Yeah, my my lessons now are, you know, once a month, once every six weeks. But the the way it's set up for myself and the student is, please don't come back until this is really, really thoroughly washed out. Like, yeah, I, I don't want to do, because I can't move you forward until you can do this. I'm I'm teaching you a very specific path. So um, I think, like you said, it just depends on the student. Let's right, do one more. We got Paul here. He says. Um, his question is about gigging. He says, I've been playing out for the last three years and have had a lot of fun doing it. I don't get nervous when I'm on stage, but like some athletes, I get pregame jitters the day or night before a show. Uh, I hmm. often feel hyped up, distracted, or lose sleep. Any thoughts on how to deal with this? Um, and have you ever had this happen to you? Oh, man, that's a good question. Yeah, I, I mean, for I would say for drum festivals, I get. I don't know. It, I just get excited. Yeah. Um, the one thing yeah. I do, Paul, is, and I definitely got this from Michael Jordan, is I just run through the whole thing in my head over and over and over again, like counting sheep until I finally fall asleep. Yeah, um, I think that's kind of a good thing to have those jitters because it, it's, I think it's your yeah. brain preparing you for the stress of what's about to happen. And if you can right. just kind of pre-play it. I do the same thing, like, like I'm currently working on a couple of things where I have to learn a lot of music, and it's very detailed. So it's it's literally keeping me up at night. So rather than like freaking out and, and going and zoning out in front of the TV and trying to get tired, I just put my headphones on and I just listen to the music over and over and yeah. over again. Rather than having it just you know feedback in my brain on its own, I just right. feed the music to my brain, and then I'm actually practicing because there is. Right. I mean, there's definitely truth to mental practice being as good as actual practice in a lot of cases totally agree totally agree yeah i mean because that mental practice even though it might not be moving your limbs um on a drum set you're you're mentally going through the situation so much that the nerves go away and i was listening to i'm not going to make it my pick of the week this time but you know how i've recommended off camera with sam jones a million times um, so he he was interviewing uh, who's the guy from Dumb and Dumber that's not Jim Carrey, Jeff Daniels. <laughs> Jeff Daniels. <laughs> I'm sure that's how he wants to be known. Hope he's not a drummer listening to this. Um, so he was interviewing Jeff Daniels, and they were asking him, "What's it like to do a play with all these greats out there, and knowing that some of the greatest actors are either on stage with you or in the crowd? Do you get nervous?" And he said, "He said no, I just." I just force myself to flip the situation. I'm not auditioning for them. The crowd is auditioning for me. Are you a good enough crowd to handle what I'm about to drop on you? Because I did my preparation. I did the work. And now I'm going to deliver all Uh the way. And I think the only way you could ever feel that confident, it's not – I know that a lot of you guys out there think like, oh, but that guy's just maybe he's cocky or maybe he just has that confidence. That confidence comes from preparation. So running through in your head a million times in a row is what gives you – that confidence because it's it's not fake confidence you actually know like dude i've got this down yeah you can't Um, fake confidence that's something i'm learning the older i get and the more that i just admit that that there's certain flaws that i have to improve on you can't fake it if there's any insecurity for me if i have any insecurity about a gig or a situation it comes out it all it's gonna manifest something absolutely something unexpected happens or i just feel like i can't perform but it's when yeah, I know I it. Don't th- it doesn't matter. Like I'm not – I was joking about it, but I'm not worried about Kenwood Denard being at this gig because I've been listening to this right. music every day since he asked me to do the gig. I'm going to know the music prob- hopefully as good as anyone else, hopefully as good as the guy that wrote it. So I, right. I know and, that and that's not going to scare me. <laughs> that's not. Then you can issue. flip it and be like, you know, I can't wait for Kenwood to hear me play this stuff because I'm actually quite proud of it. And yeah. that's – fun. Yeah. And that's what it all comes down to is the preparation. Put in the work. Everything else will kind of handle itself. Dig it. So we want to – yeah, we can do we can do one more. This is, this is a – let's do one more. We still have like a I'm million to get through. Are you scared? I'm making you nervous. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm very prepared. I, I go to sleep every night thinking about let's get to your questions. <laughs> okay, so this comes from John. Uh, he recently bought a new set of hi-hats that he – thinks sound great they're exactly what i'm looking for um and he thinks they sit well in the mix uh rather than sticking sticking out like a sore thumb like his old hi-hats did 
but I recently had an interaction with a guitar player in my band who had some choice words that boiled down to not liking the new hi-hat sound. <laughs> I know a lot of it comes down to opinion and not everything can sound good to everyone, but what's the best way we've found for talking drums with non-drummers and deciding when to change and when to hold firm? That's a great question. I mean, you should have first immediately make fun of his pedal rig. That'll, that always goes really far with guitar players. Um, yeah, if nice he, if reverb. He, if he plays a Les Pauls, tell him he should get a Strat or vice versa. Exactly. <laughs> Dude. Um, no, I, that's, a, that's a tough thing because, uh, one, I would definitely be open to his opinion, his or her opinion for sure, because we are drummers and we hear things totally different behind our little wall of drums than how the people are perceiving it a few feet in front of us. So I would definitely ask, w- try to find some adjectives that your guitar player can relate to. Ask, are my hi-hats too harsh? Mm. Are they too soft? Are they too buttery? Are they, are they aggressive? Like find adjectives that aren't drum adjectives so that your guitar player can communicate with you and find out what he or she doesn't like about your hi-hats. Um, and but yeah, I mean, I I personally like getting that kind of input because I feel like I'm just too stuck in my own bubble. What about you? Yeah, I would say it's it definitely is a conversation that you need to have, and and rather than have it become an argument, just figure out why. Why don't you like it? Is it the actual sound? Is it getting in the way? Is it too loud? Is it too quiet? Am I playing? Let me it? ask you this, Mike. Yeah, I would. That, okay, you just hit it. Yeah. <laughs> what if it's not the hats? What if it's how you're playing? That the was going to be you know? my number one suggestion. Was why is he commenting on your hi hats? <laughs> like what? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> just made Mike spit something green tea <clears throat> all over. Uh huh. There's green tea everywhere. Ah, oh, god dang it! It killed my freaking nose. <laughs> But right, I mean that would, that's that's me. That would be my it. first reaction. It's like, totally. Why the hell are you even paying attention to my hi hats? What am I doing? <laughs> like, right? Are you by chopping them? Like, honestly, crazy? let's say that you had what are those really really thick? Um, are they Z customs back in the day? Oh Zildjian. yeah, the Dynabeats. Okay, yeah. Dynabeats. Yep. So, I I have a feeling that if Steve Jordan rolled into a club and that's what was on the house kit, I have a feeling he could play them quiet enough that you wouldn't know that they were a half an inch thick, you know? Yeah. I mean, back in the day he used 17 inch roots and sometimes he still does. (laughs) Dude, there you go. So, I mean, mean, that's get good music out of anything. So yeah. Yeah. That would be my first question is, all right, well, well, two questions. Why is it, but does it bother you? Are they too loud? Are they too quiet? Is there a frequency thing that's getting in the way? Like an actual musical problem. Right. Or is it something I'm doing with them? Am I playing too many diddles? Am I hitting them too hard? Like, what is it? Honestly, oh, hi-hat volume is is one of the easiest ways to make your groove sound better. When the hi-hats dominate a groove instead of support the groove, it's it's just not going to feel good. <clears throat> it's a it's a very sharp sound. So when you have a groove that should be cats, cat, and instead it's chick, chick, chack, chick, 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 chack, it's like, dude. There's no way the guitar player's like, yeah, more of that. So in our camps, like I'll, I'll usually walk out. Glad you weren't drinking tea. I'll usually walk out and put my hand like over their hi-hat stick and like hold it down to like two to three inches. Oh, I'm yeah. like, dude, um, you know, one of the my favorite groove artists that really has the hi-hats in control would be Benny Greb. When he plays a groove, his hi-hats support that groove so much. Kick and snare are the dominant forces, yeah. and the hi-hats just support it. I was so, going to say Ash Sohn is another good example. There you he go. can feather Absolutely. the hi-hats like nobody. And he's using different yeah. hi-hats all the time, but it always sounds mm-hmm. good. So I can kind of yeah. relate this to, you know, I, I, I'm in the house band for this young musician jam session every month, and I'm always trying to bring a set of cymbals that are going to sound good when someone with a a pretty cumbersome touch is playing on them, to say the least. So I took very, the, very political. the thinnest, darkest, driest, kind of, you know, what I think are just the easiest to play symbols I, I have. Right. And it doesn't matter when a, when a 10-year-old kid starts wailing on a crash. I mean, mm-hmm. the one, one of the moms was putting her hands over her ears <laughs> and looked at me and goes, <laughs> why did you bring those symbols? I'm like these are like, literally the softest symbols that I own. <laughs> these are the these are the butter set, man. This is it. Uh, yeah, I, so I think that I think that's good. But the good thing that I would say about this question is, when you have this discussion with your guitar player, as long as your guitar player is a cool person, you're going to grow from this situation. And yeah, it's true. 
your guitar player is saving you from having this conversation in your next gig. So I, I'd say be very open to it and try to make things sound as good as possible. Yeah, I guess it, yeah, hopefully it's not just the the metaphor for other problems in your relationship. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, yeah, your hi-hats suck, and he really means you suck. That's, you know, let's yeah, hope yeah, yeah. that's not what yeah. it actually is. <laughs> I'm sure it's I'm sure it's nothing more than just a a, a very thick top hi-hat. All right. <laughs> Guys, thanks for sending in your listener questions. Please keep doing that. You can send them into mdinfo at moderndrummer.com, and we will get to them as soon as we can. You can also always send audio questions. And oh, we forgot to, we forgot to announce mm. the uh, the December listener submission concept. Yes, and it's so late Please. in the episode, so hopefully everyone made it to the end. But we I've played 119 <laughs> beats. I'm over it. <laughs> so for the next for all of December's podcast, excluding this week, which will be coming out on December 1st, we want listeners to send some intro grooves. So send them in. Just play some beats. Just make sure it's like a decently clean recording. Make sure it's not over. You know, completely distorted and harsh. I can I can yeah. I can work with just about anything, but we want to get some other some other sounds, get some participation. So if you got some ideas, just record them, send them over to MD Info, and we'll pick. I guess we'll pick four for December. So yeah, and you'll get to find out if you haven't done this before how hard it is to play a consistent groove for a minute or more, uh, <laughs> knowing that that's <laughs> the only thing people are listening to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we're gonna call you out. Anyway, so uh, yeah, you'll be fine. You got this. You got this. So yeah, please send those in, and uh, that'll be that'll be fun to hear those. So all right, you ready to do picks of the week? I am. Do you want me to go first? Or you want to go first? Go for it. All right. So this actually completely unintentionally falls right in line with our displacement discussion. Totally. Uh, Aaron Sterling, who is my spirit animal, <laughs> he, uh, <laughs> he posted a video yesterday that where he was playing, um, uh, which song was it? Was it Back in Black? Yeah, Back in Back Black. Back in Black, but he displaced the riff in his head, so he's playing the drums off by a 16th note. And oh. it, it just freaks me out. So we're going to actually drop in the audio now to kind of check out a little bit what he's doing. So check it out. Like I'm kind of okay with it when the guitar riff comes in, but when the vocals come in, I'm like, whoa! Oh, it's so cool, and he's so confident in it. Yeah, he's not budging, not budging God. at all. I mean, that is a right there is an argument for know your subdivisions inside and out. I mean, it's yeah, it's I agree. locked. That's why he's on hit records because he can do that type of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Not because he can do that, but because he has such control of the time. I mean, just the fact that he could start playing a groove and the band could hear it incorrectly and they would come in a 16th or an 8th <laughs> off and he could just hold it through the whole thing and be like, that's fine. We'll just play it this way tonight. <laughs> like, I I won't drift. I'll keep us right here. <clears throat> awesome, man. I and love it. I just love, too, like that... It's Aaron Sterling audio with an iPhone that's shaking. Yeah, you know what I mean. It, like it doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, it's like the kid. This it's like this just kind of shaky Instagram video. But the audio is like, uh, dude, this could be like a hit single. Like as far as how well it's mixed, what a stud, man. Yeah. So his, his handle is Sterloid. S T E R L O I D. Definitely follow him on Instagram if you don't follow anyone yeah. else. He's he's amazing. <laughs> it's it's worth it. I would say. Uh, the two that give you a nice balance of life, comedy, and drumming would be jo- uh, Josh Freeze and Aaron Sterling. Mm. Yeah, jo- yeah. Josh needs to up the. Um, I mean, his comedy game is on point. <laughs> <laughs> it's seriously on point, dude. But his drum uh, stuff is so rare. But when he posts it, it's like, yes, that's the best whew. rock drummer on earth. So he needs Man, to like just do that, one for those one. synchronicity clips yeah. from oh Sting. Gosh. So oh, I was good. like, good God. <laughs> All right. Well, my pick of the week um, is uh, the newest album from Imagine Dragons is called Evolve. Well, the reason I'm picking this is because as somebody that teaches a lot and the halftime shuffle is very in vogue right now, people always have 
two songs that they go to for shuffles. They've got Rosanna and Fool in the Rain. Sometimes they'll throw in Death Cab for Cuties, uh, Grapevine Fires, and that's kind of the only three shuffles that have ever been recorded unless you go into <laughs> Steely Dan world. Right. But that's not the case. But what I look for, the, the reason I actually don't like playing to those songs is because the drums are legendary, and I don't like messing with my shuffles while – Bonham's killing it behind me. <laughs> yeah, right. So what I look for is I look for songs that fit the shuffle world, but they weren't recorded with a, a halftime shuffle in them. So check out the song Believer. You've probably heard it a little bit if you've seen any of the previews for the new uh, Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, so that song's in there uh, in all the previews. But check out Believer by Imagine Dragons, and it will give you a killer triplet-based slow tune to work on your halftime shuffle or any of your triplet vocabulary too so i think you guys could really use that as a play along track and it's a great song obviously they write you know epic hit singles but it just gives you a good environment to mess around with your triplet based vocabulary including halftime shuffles dig it i don't know that one i'll have to check it out yeah there you go believer by imagine dragons all right buddy i will see you again next week we are back on the norm Everyone send in your audio uh, for the intro. Try to keep it at least, we need about a minute, I would say, at the minimum. And, uh, and yeah, we'll start rocking. Also, right. I have some clinic announcements next week. So I'm going to be doing some West Coast stuff. I'll definitely be hitting Bentley's Drum Shop and Revival Drum Shop. And I'm looking to add Bizarre Guitar and possibly um, Don Bennett's Drum Studio. So I'll let you guys know the dates on those when I get them. Sweet. All right. Till next time. Later, brother. We're done. <laughs>